If you could see a picture of hope, what would it look like? What does hope look like in practice? Let's talk about that. From Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 14. Hear God's word this morning. Jesus also said to his disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager. Okay, get the picture here. There's a rich man, a rich man who had a manager. And charges were brought against the manager that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be a manager. And the manager said to him, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, 100 measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, 100 measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill, write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. So that, when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. One who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with true riches. And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. May God bless us today through this, his holy word. Let us pray. Father, bless this word today and us to receive it, not only into our minds to understand it, but into our hearts that we may believe it, that through our lives we may live it. In Jesus' name, amen. Guy Dowd was National Teacher of the Year a couple decades ago, and when he uh, received that honor, he was invited to a lot of places to speak. And one of the places Guy Dowd, National Teacher of the Year, 
spoke was to a, a national gathering of youth workers. And he told this story, kind of a famous story. He said he was talking about his child, his, his daughter. She was afraid of the closet. She'd go up to bed and she'd say, I'm afraid of what's in the closet. So she'd come down at, every night and she'd say that. And, uh, and he'd say to her, just pray to Jesus. He will bring you comfort. Just pray when you feel afraid. Just pray. She went back up. She came back down five minutes later. She said, Dad, I am just, I'm still afraid of the closet. And he said, well, just pray to Jesus. And she said, I understand that, but I need somebody with skin on. Sometimes the, the way that we're accused by people who are outside the faith is that there's a disconnect between our otherworldliness and this world. That, that, uh, and, and the classic way that, that Christians are accused of being no good to this world is this. You're so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. Have you heard this before? So heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. And sometimes there is a disconnect. When, when we're so moralistic and we can't make those morals uh, have hands and feet and have skin on, right? But let's test something. C.S. Lewis said, if you aim at heaven, you get earth thrown in. If you aim at earth, you get neither. Let's test that this morning. Because the picture that we, we get from this passage is a highly relevant picture of hope. It is hope in practice. It's living in light of eternity now. And that is highly practical, highly relevant, connecting your future to your present. So let's ask this question. What does hope look like? What does it look like in practice? Here's a couple of things that jump out to me. First of all, hope in practice looks healthy. It looks healthy. That that. You emotionally, spiritually, psychologically, socially, you're a healthy person. Hope in practice looks healthy. Second, it looks helpful. People who are, are, are uh, hopeful are also helpful. They think outside of themselves. So let's look at that. Let's, let's dig into that. First of all, people who are hopeful are healthy. Why? Because they think win-win. People who, have a, who live in light of eternity are healthier now. They're healthy now because they, they think win-win. Now, let's, 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 let's picture this. Let's imagine, I want you to imagine in your mind's eye that, that your next-door neighbor calls you and complains about the guy across the street, okay? Right? Familiar scenario. Maybe this happened re- to you recently. I don't know. So there you are. There, you're sitting there and you receive this phone call. Your next door neighbor calls you and complains about the guy across the street. And you have two choices. You can, you can go negative. I just call it going negative, all right? So you can go negative, right? You can say, well, I'm just going to pile on. And all these things that you know about this person... Uh, that you suspect, 
And you don't even know whether your next door neighbor is right or wrong. You don't even know. But you're, you're willing, sometimes you and I are willing to pile on, to throw kindling on that fire. Do you do it? Often we do. Or you can be wise as a serpent, but innocent as a dove. You can give neutral feedback. You can empathize that this person is upset without contributing, without adding fuel to the fire, without going negative. You can, you can sort of trade what would be the world's win-lose way of getting, feeling better about yourself, of currying favor with somebody else, of securing yourself in some way. You can trade all of that for something else that's internal, hidden, unseen. You see, what's happening here is the, the owner of the estate, the owner is a stand-in. He is an unscrupulous man. He has gained his wealth through worldly means. And so the owner is a stand-in for the flesh, the world, and evil. All right? You see what's happening? And so what Jesus is doing is he's showing, he's giving this very odd, shocking, jarring image. He's trying to get people's attention and say, wake up, look at this. Take a look, really look at it. What's happening here? Because he's showing the virtue of a man who is dishonest. He's showing the virtue of a man who is dealing in the world, in the flesh, and in evil in such a way that brings favor to his future, that brings him favor to his future. So let's, let's make the connection now. Do you see? Now let's connect it back to the illustration. What Jesus is saying is essentially, look, in, in the world's economy, we trade in a zero-sum game. If you get more than, than I have, right, then I have less than you. But in the kingdom economy, it's win-win. It's win-win. And so when we begin even, even to uh, deal with each other in a way, if we respond even secret, in the secret place of our heart, I know something about my neighbor across the street. This person is complaining about him. I know this will give me a hit, an adrenaline rush. This will win favor. We'll have a common enemy. In the world's economy, we trade in win-lose. But in God's economy, in God's eyes, we trade in the win-win. Oh. Let's tease this out a little bit more. Verse 9. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. I mean, that is mind-blowing. I mean, Jesus is talking about... Dealing with each other in such a way that you build the kind of strength of character through the hope of eternity that you actually have the strength to endure in eternity, to deal in the way that eternal, eternal beings deal. 
Let me tease it out a little bit further here. This is, this is unbelievable to me. Sometimes I, sometimes I, um, I talk about World War II, or I, I, like to, I like to talk about what's going on in concentration camps. And there, there's, nothing, there's nothing morbid about that because what's happening is, is that life in the concentration camp, this is from Langdon Guilty, Langdon Gilkey, who spent some time in, the concent, in a concentration camp. He was... Um, he was a theologian, he was a scholar at the University of Chicago, he was, he was, um, he, he was teaching in China, and he was captured by the Japanese, and he was interned during World War II, and, uh, and so he spent time in a concentration camp with Eric Little. One of my heroes, Eric Little. Chariots of Fire, remember the movie Chariots of Fire? That's Eric Little, 1924, 400-meter Olympic champion. He says this, Life in a concentration camp tears open the human soul and exposes its foundations. So what's really going on in the conversation with the neighbor? What's really going on at the heart of it? What is the enduring character-level thing that's happening? Are you trading and win-lose or are you trading and win-win? Is hope driving you to trade all of the possible gains of this world, of the flesh that says, let me go negative, to trade all that for something eternal? Gilkey goes on, he says, life only has meaning when we have a hope and a meaning that suffering and death cannot destroy. And in that moment of temptation to go negative, you're being tested. You are being tested. The metal in you is being tested. Do you have something, a hope that endures, that can express itself now? Oh, if you can't be faithful in the little thing, how are you going to be faithful with much? You see? Is the passage starting to come alive to you? Is it starting to make more sense? You see how relevant this is? It just blows my mind. I love it. Religion is not the place where the problem of man's ego is automatically solved. In other words, you can't just come here and get the right answer to Christianity and, and get better. You have to practice it. You have to, you have to take the hope that's in you and exercise it, exercise those, those muscles in a way. In other words, what, what the secular world is even beginning to to understand is that there's this thing called emotional intelligence. And this is what Jesus is talking about. And on one level, Jesus is simply talking about our ability to be aware that there's a, that there's a pull on us that is very immature. It is win-lose. There's a pull on us that's the flesh, that's negative, that can, and you know what happens? It's toehold, foothold, stronghold. Flesh, world, evil. Toehold, foothold, stronghold. And so when we begin to yield in that moment to the negative, we begin to give evil a toehold. And we begin to become even arrested in our emotional development. And we become less capable of empathy, of even being aware of the battle that's going on, even being aware of how immature we are of even being aware 
of how the way we respond in those moments affects other people, whether they know it or not, it affects them. That secret thing that you're hiding from everybody, you think it doesn't, you think it doesn't affect the people around you? It does. It does. And I'm not saying this to shame or guilt. You know that, right? That's not the deal. That doesn't, that doesn't actually do anything. If, if, this is just, if you're thinking that this is about shame or guilt, then you've missed it. This is about hope. The only thing that's really going to be uh, valuable to you is, is to be driven by your hope, to live in the light of eternity and to get in touch with the hope that's in you that can express itself in those moments of temptation of the flesh and of the world and of evil. Then you can begin to build that emotional metal, the maturity, the spiritual maturity that can endure not only in these small things that we deal with, but can endure eternal things. Do you see? So in a way, it's not about getting you into heaven. It's about getting heaven into you. So, what does hope look like? First of all, it looks like healthy people. Emotionally healthy, psychologically healthy, spiritually healthy, socially healthy people. But second, hopeful people are helpful people. Hope brings help. Today, why? Because hopeful people think outside themselves. That's why. Hopeful people think outside themselves. They're not just... Me only, they're not only, but also, like Philippians chapter 2, it says, uh, look, each of you should look not only to your own needs, but also to the needs of others. Sometimes we balk at the idea of putting others ahead of yourself, right? Well, I can understand that. You know, there's that, that whole cliche about the, uh, putting on your own o- oxygen mask in the, uh, in, in the airplane before you assist your child. And I, I think that's a legitimate thing to consider because in, in Philippians it says, Look not only to your own needs, but also to the needs of others. People who are hopeful know how to think outside of themselves. Uh, you know, about a year ago, I mentioned this book called Halftime by Bob Buford. And he talks about going from a, a season of success to a season of significance. He's gotten halfway through his life, he's made a whole pile of whatever, money. And he's realizing it's, he's a hollow person. Why is, he, why is he able to see that? Because he, he's, he's put himself at the center of his world and he realizes that's, that's not enough. That we're at least made for other people and certainly made, then, and, and so certainly we know that we're made for relationships and enduring relationships primarily a relationship with God. And so he begins to ask himself the question, how is it that I can, can find meaning in my life? And he, he begins to see that he needs to spend his season of success, spend it on significance. And now we're talking literally. He begins to spend his wealth in such a way that elevates the lives of other people. Verse 11, if then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? You know, there's not a perfect system. 
You know, I'm, I'm big into capitalism. I'm big into people taking responsibility. But I'm equally as big into the fact that this is a broken, unfair world. And that we need to have a hopeful drive to elevate the people around us, not in a condescending way, but in a way that identifies with people who are hurting, the last, the least, and the lost. That's what hope looks like. It looks like justice. It looks like people who take their privilege and direct it. You know, it drives me crazy when, when you hear people use this word these days, privilege, to shame and to guilt other people, when, when what we should do is recognize that privilege, privilege is something that, that can be driven by hope and should be. Every one of us in America has some level of privilege. Do you know, you know what the average person lives on around the world? Around the world, how much money do people live on? Do you know what it is? Think of it, think of it. What is, what's the average amount of money that people around the world live on? The answer is $2 a day. We're privileged. What are we going to do with it? And why? People of hope should not have to be told what to do with their privilege. People of hope are helpful. I love that the movie Schindler's List. It's a very dark and difficult movie and long. But it, it, in it, um, Liam Neeson plays Arthur Schindler, who, who has this uh, factory that makes bombs for the war, for World War II, for the Germans. And what does he do with it? First of all, he makes, he makes weapons that don't work. This is pretty amazing. He's making weapons that don't work because, because he recognizes that the cause of the Germans is unjust. And so out of a sense of hope, he spends down his fortune for the sake of a cause that's bigger than him. He's able to get outside of himself. I remember the scene. This is the most heart-rending scene to me is at the end of the movie where he looks when, when people are celebrating what he's done, the lives that he's saved, so many Jews were employed by him. And, and so the, the Germans saw them as necessary. And so they weren't taken and killed. And so he, he, he is, his whole business becomes in a business of saving Jewish people as a Christian. And he sees his ring. And he's heartbroken because he realizes there's one more thing I could have melted down and spent. How many lives could this ring have saved? You see, this isn't about guilting people who have means. This is about seeing what power lies in hope. And if we don't have that level of hope, what do you have? Go and find it. This is the level of hope that is Easter hope. In a way, Jesus is saying, play Robin Hood to your own soul. Remember Robin Hood? Robin Hood's stealing from the rich and giving to the poor, right? So what he's saying is, he's not saying, look, let's all just go sell all our fortunes and start giving, giving money away indiscriminately. Maybe, maybe what you're supposed to do is just adopt a child. 
Maybe what you're supposed to do is, is reposition what you're, the, the way you're living your life. Maybe there are people around you. Maybe you've gotten very comfortable with your society of people. Maybe, maybe there are people around you, and you can spend your, your connectedness for the sake of somebody else. That's what's going on with Spark Thomasville. Have you all heard about Spark? It's one of the things that have, has sort of bubbled up in the last uh, year or so from, from people asking difficult questions about folks um, that live in parts of town that are more troubled, and that is how do we help elevate people, right? Elevate people. And so Spark Thomasville kind of bubbled up. It's a way of training entrepreneurs to uh, giving them capital, giving them mentoring, giving them a template, and giving them encouragement, giving them hope, giving them help to become their own, their own businessman, businesswoman. Uh, over at Disciples of Jesus Ministries, uh, Pastor Denny Blake uh, hosted this um, spark tank, right? It's got sort of riffing on Shark Tank. And it was, it was one of the best things I've been to in a long, long time. The, the, the room was a mixture of people from all walks of life uh, and listening to the presentations of these young entrepreneurs. And, and the reason why this was working is that people were taking what they had earned, they were taking their success, and they were repositioning it, redirecting it, lending it, lending their thoughts, their expertise, their energy because of the hope that they have. Who in your life, who around you, I mean, maybe you feel lonely, maybe you feel like nobody's paying attention to you or inviting you to play golf or out to lunch or to play bridge. Maybe you need to be the inviter. Maybe, maybe you have the faith that can move mountains, but you're hiding it under a bushel and you're isolated because you're not doing anything with it. It's given to you for the common good. And so, so you see, what Jesus is saying is, Live your hope in a practical way. Because as Robert Frost says, nature's first green is gold. Nature's first green is gold. But nothing gold can stay. Her hardest hue to hold. Her early leaf's a flower. But only so an hour. Then leaf subsides to leaf. So Eden sank in grief. So dawn goes down today. Nothing gold can stay. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the golden, golden hope that we have within. We pray that you would guide us as people of faith, hope, and love to live it out in such a way that can be seen. May we bear witness to our own hearts in the quiet places of our soul when we're tempted to go negative. May, may we be helpful people seeing the opportunities rich around us to spend ourselves on a worthy cause outside of ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.